Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. There we are. Deuteronomy 13 is where we're at. If you haven't already found your spot. Uh, we are here. I'll just start into it. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. So for context, Deuteronomy's chapter 1 through 4 was like a history and a review, and Moses kind of says, turn and take your journey. Deuteronomy's 5 through 11 was all of Moses' reasons why we should care what the law says. And then in Deuteronomy 12, we started the third section of Deuteronomy, which is the law. And Deuteronomy 12 was where we're supposed to worship, and that it's God's decision how we follow and how we worship him. So if you're all, if anybody in here is church hopping, uh, Deuteronomy 12 is a good chapter to say, here's how you identify a church that God has prepared for you. Um, essentially, keep it holy and guard that church space. It's an important space. Then we get to Deuteronomy 13, and we are in the context of the church space. And I think that's really important because we're going to get three different, like, things that happen inside of the community of believers of Israel. And all three of them are bad things. The first bad thing is when you get somebody that's a dreamer of dreams or a prophet that shows up. Um, and there is how to deal with these people, which gets pretty graphic. Deuteronomy 13 then is a continuation of these worship spaces. We are supposed to understand that that worship space is to be protected, a la Deuteronomy 12. And you, there are just boundaries to that space. There are things you do and don't do when we're gathering to study God's word or when the Israelites were gathering in the tabernacle. Um, and if there's things that are against that, you're supposed to just set that boundary and say, this is a sacred set apart space. So what Moses then goes on to do is in this chapter, he's giving three ways that believers are pulled away from God while they're in that holy sacred space and things where you can get deceived. So the first one is the what I would call the puffed up individual. Someone who makes themselves out to be more than, that, than they are. Uh, and they kind of show up amongst believers and they elevate themselves. And they very quickly want to be the center of attention. They want people to see them as the most holy, the most knowledgeable. Even in an environment where the teacher is like not proclaiming to know everything, this person does know everything. They are a prophet in verse 1. Nahi means a spokesman, typically of a spiritual nature, someone who claims to speak for God. So that's what a prophet is. So we see the word, and of course, I think sometimes that word carries baggage that it doesn't have for the Hebrews. So when you see the word prophet here, it's someone who claims to speak for God. We get this all the time. God said to me this. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not true. 
And the only way to know that is if you're that person. So we as not that person have to try to understand and discern if we should listen to them or not because they're saying they're hearing from God or they're pretending to be a prophet. The dreamer of dreams, we even see some of that today. The Bible consistently sees dreams as a kind of spiritual connection to God, but so do all the pagan religions. So dreaming is a weird kind of spiritual phenomena. So someone who dreams dreams in this context would be uh, claiming that their dreams are coming from God. This is not pagan worship dreams. This is Judaistic tradition that dreams have meaning. Uh, we see that in Genesis 37 with Joseph. Like Joseph has the ability to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. And there is meaning that God is communicating through dreams. Uh, Numbers 12.6, that God channels messages through spiritual leaders in the form of dreams. It happens, and it's happened all through the Christian church too. Um, even Peter had a dream where there was a sheet coming down with all sorts of food, and God said, come Peter, kill and eat. So dreams have consistently biblically been one of those passages. So when somebody dreams a dream and they say, God gave me this dream and bring that to the community of believers, this is one of those kinds of things where either they're actually bringing us a dream that we should be listening to, or they're lying and puffing themselves up. And it's really hard to discern these things. Jeremiah 23, 25, and 26 says, I have heard what the prophets said, that prophecy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall it be in the heart of prophets that, of the, that prophesy lies? Yea, there are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. When somebody says they're a prophet and they've heard from God, or they're a dreamer of dreams, and they're not a true prophet, it's often because they believe it so much in their own heart, according to Jeremiah, that to them it's true, right? And we see this in the Christian church. It's a really tough spot to be, but it's like, God told me to go do this. And then you go do it, and there's no fruit in it, and clearly God wasn't in it. But it takes a lot of humility to say, ooh, I like convinced myself God was talking to me, but I was really just doing what I wanted to do and working it into my own heart. So this is a really complex topic to dig, dig, dig into. Moses doesn't make it easy because in verse 2 he says, they do signs and wonders that actually come to pass. So this isn't just somebody convincing themselves that it's true. There's actually some sort of spiritual force behind these people that is not God. And they are convinced that they're saying it of God. So the people doing it are deluded when they do it. And this is a tough spot. So when it actually comes to pass, which we don't see a lot of that in the church, at least I haven't seen prophets that predict things and then they come true. I've heard of them, but I haven't seen it myself. Um, or people that dream dreams and they, they actually come true. Of course you can dream vague dreams. I don't know if you guys have seen this in the church. Oh, I had a dream and it was about the color blue. And then that day they see the color blue. Those are vague dreams and they're almost comical, but they're so serious and convinced about it. It's hard to just say, you're nuts because we're nice people and we don't want to do that. So even when there's an apparent demonstration of power, we as believers test the spirits. And it's one of the things that we're, we're supposed to be doing. We test all things. So the appearance of a miracle is far less than the word of God itself. And that's, I think, what Moses is setting up here. Or, or another way to say it is one's experiences can be deceiving because the signs and wonders actually come to pass. So the experience then is not as important as what God has already said in his word. And we test things like that against the word of God. So when it says in verse 3, you shall not listen to the words that the prophets of the dreamer for the Lord your God is testing you. 
God's checking to see if when we see stuff that looks awfully cool, do we say, where does it say that in the Word of God? So I'm in a chat channel in an online game, and somebody says something like, they just had God tell them this thing. Grant, you remember this? And all I did is typed, oh, where did you find that in the Word of God? And then the person went off that it was a little more mystical than that. And I just said, okay, cool. I just wanted to know if I should listen to you or not. And so I was a little snarky with them. But it's one of those things where you kind of test people against the Word of God because God never contradicts himself. So the words of the prophet never contradict the Word of God. And it's one of the ways we can test these folks. I always like the idea, too, that if God's actually telling them to do something, who am I to say that God's not? You should go and do that thing. Because I don't think God's going to be against people that just act and do things. God will smile and calmly redirect you if he needs to. But there's, if, God, if you feel like God's speaking to you and tell you to do things, the worst thing you can do is not do that thing. Like, do it, because that could be the Lord telling you to do things. But this is different. This is a puffed-up person trying to tell the whole community that God's speaking to them and putting God's validity behind what they want to do. The testing idea for some people is an interesting idea. Theologically, I don't know where everybody's at on that idea, but here it is that God tests these people, that this is a test. God's testing in the Hebrew implies to prove something or even to smell out the false. So the Hebrew word is often used in terms of getting food in front of you and taking a whiff before you eat. They're testing the food. And God does that with us. He wants to see how we react in different settings. Uh, Jesus lifts up his eyes and sees a great multitude coming towards him, John 6, verse 5. And he says to Philip, where should we buy bread that he may eat? But this is what he said to test him, for he himself knew exactly what he would do. Jesus even tests his disciples. God often asks questions of us knowing the answer, but he wants to see what we'll do and how we'll react. So the same situation. Sometimes God puts people like this in our life that are puffed up because he wants to know if you believe his word more than you believe a human being that can say things fancy-like. This is why teachers have a lot of responsibility. This is why it's a terrifying thing if you think about it. If you're going to teach a child or teach another a friend or an adult or somebody in your family, if you're going to teach anything, it should resonate with the word of God. Um, and if it doesn't, you're in that kind of situation where you're accountable for what you do. Verse 3, it says, you shall not listen. Believers are expected to discern and they're held accountable for themselves no matter how fancy this person is. And then in verse 3, you're supposed to love God, flee from idolatry. Verse 4, you shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. The reaction that we have when anyone comes along in the church that says things that sound appealing and even has signs and wonders behind them, the reaction we should have is to just follow the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and soul. This is pretty much what Moses has been saying for the whole book of Deuteronomy. In verse 4, there are six verbs. To walk after God, do what he says. To fear God, put his word above any human being's word. Keep is to guard. It's not a, it, it, to keep that boundary around you. To obey, to serve. Both are associated with service to God. And to hold fast, to keep going back to the word of God over and over and over again. We trust what God says because it's come true before. It'll come true again. So there's a good chance. Um, <laughs> there's a good chance that there are people in this room right now that have heard false teachers. There's a good chance that some of you have even got at the end of a Sunday night and thought, Dickers is nuts. 
And that's okay, but then don't leave the room without holding me accountable to that. And saying, Dickers, I think you're out of line with this. And here's where in the Word of God I'm reading that differs from what you're reading. Katie does that to me all the time. She waits till everybody's gone and she's like, Dad, I don't know about this. Um, I've even gone back to podcasts and redone portions of the podcast because I wanted to make sure that I was adhering to what the Word of God says over and above an example I might give or something like that. Follow the Word. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just stick to it. And God tests us in that by bringing people into our life. Uh, oh, I'll give one more example. Like, so Steph and I have had a lot of this because we've, with academic life, you move. So as you go from universities and you get research projects, so you move to where the research is and all that sort of thing. If you really do grad school full on, you may find yourself doing some of that kind of thing. We were going to a church um, when we were in Ohio, and we, it looked so good, and the, the paint color was nice, and the stage looked good. <laughs> And the music was great, and we loved it. And I, they had a theme song. And every time the theme song played, you had to finish up your donuts and get into the congregation. We felt so warm and cozy there. But something didn't sit right with us with this place because they kind of kept people at a distance. So, um, you know, they're like, oh, you got you to gotta see, like, the home church because it was a church plant. But we won't take you there till you're ready. It's like, what are you talking about till we're ready? There's weird stuff like that. And then the weirdness came home because Grant and Katie had gone to Sunday school and they were doing lessons with the kids on how to pray. And they were teaching them like gypsy methodology that when you pray for somebody, you keep your eyes open and watch their facial expression. And you start with vague things. And if the face changes, you know you're hitting something. So you pursue after what you just said. And that's how you make it so where you're hearing the Holy Spirit. And I'm like, that's not the Holy Spirit. That's just good psychology being applied in a very deceptive way. So we were kind of like, what do you do when you hit that situation? Sorry, nice, awesome music and good decorations. And the donuts were phenomenal. You just got to run from that stuff because it's twisted and it's weird. And there's a lot of that out there. So, and I was really sad. I was like, man, now we can't do this. But then God blessed us because we turned around and did the thing at the nursing home and we had 40 old people. And if you've I've never heard the nursing home stories, they're the most fun people to teach the word to ever, especially ones that can't hear you. <laughs> what? And anyways, nursing home moments. Um, follow the word, don't add to it, don't take away from it. Be careful of people in the church that do that. So here's what we do with these people when we identify them. If you're an Israelite living in Israel, trying to make a nation that's holy unto God, but that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord God commanded you to walk. You shall put the evil from your midst. Might be different interpretations on that last sentence for you. You get rid of these folks. Now, um, this is difficult for people because if someone says, I think God's speaking to me, and we can find out discernibly that God did not speak to them, if you're an Israelite, they killed that person. It was extremely harsh and quick. Kill them now, let God sort it out later. And it was just kind of one of those things. I want to make a point here because I don't want people leaving here killing folks that they think are false prophets. 
I want to make a couple points on this, and then I want to walk you through New Testament theology and how this translates to Christians today. We don't go around and kill people, um, just so you know that. And I'm hoping most people already know that. The word entice you there in verse uh, 5, you can circle that one. In the Hebrew, it means to thrust or push you towards something. When something looks good or it's appealing, advertising is a good example of this word entice. They're trying to push you towards something you wouldn't normally do or normally believe, and they're doing it with force. And we see this a lot, I think, when you, when you go into like a Christian bookstore. There'll be a lot of people trying to get you to believe something that's not the scriptures, and it takes entire books to entice you towards that. And it can be really dangerous. Jesus warns that in the final days... Uh, Matthew 24, if you want the reference, verse 10. And then many will be offended and they will betray one another and they will hate one another. Then there will be many false prophets that rise up and deceive many because lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. The problem with false prophets is that what sounds good initially eventually leads us to be offended by other believers. And then we feel like we're betrayed or we're betraying other believers and then we start to hate each other within the church. Like there's deep resentment between actual believers over these new ideas that aren't biblical. And then Jesus kind of goes on saying there's a deception here that comes with false prophets. It's this kind of enticing. And it basically creates lawlessness, which creates a cold and a dead church. That's why you get these people out of your church. So if it's possible to deceive even the elect, we're not talking about bad people. We're talking about good people intending to be doing good things that get deceived by these folks. And they existed back then. Paul calls one of these people out in 3 John. Actually, that might be John, huh? In 3 John. So John calls one of these people out in 3 John chapter 1. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence among them, a puffed up person, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brothers and he forbids those who wish you, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil is not seen God. So this idea in our passage where it says from your midst, I think it's important to note that there's people like this in the church today. The New Testament identifies these kinds of people we have them all over the place. I just pray I'm not one of them, right? Like, I don't want to be deceived. I want to read the Word of God for myself and know what it is. But when we run to the, when we find these people that are enticing us to believe theologies that really aren't solidly biblical theologies, what we're supposed to do is get the heck away from them. Or as Gandalf says, run, you fools, right? When there's a giant evil there, you get away from it and you run from it. So the first type of person's there. This idea of killing gets translated. Remember Jesus said that if you even call someone a fool in your head, that's like murder. You know, he's doing that kind of treatise on the commandments. Basically, this idea of murdering someone is when we think less of someone, right? Or when we cast them away from us or kick them out of our church. That's the New Testament equivalent of putting someone out into the wild where they're going to be dead spiritually. So the New Testament believers aren't supposed to actually stone people because they're not running a government. 
They're not trying to execute a nation. It's a new kind of kingdom of heaven. And the death or execution that happens in the kingdom of heaven is a spiritual death or execution. It's kind of consistent how that plays out. The second kind of person that runs in the church. This is kind of a tough chapter, right? The first type is the one that puffs themselves up. The second type is the one that does the opposite. They buddy up to you and sidle up to you and rub elbows and become in, in, and become connected with you. And they appeal to you to kind of leave what it says in the word of God out of friendship, out of familial connections. Listen to this, verse 6. If your brother, which is a broad sense of brother there, the son of your mother, that's the specific sense, your actual biological brother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul, secretly entices you saying, let's go over there and serve other gods which we have not known, neither you nor your fathers. Of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you, far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Uh, broadly in verse 7, I think it's, it's kind of, we're not talking about Canaanite gods here. We're talking about anything that draws you away from the love of God. Verse 8, you shall not consent to him or listen to him. Bless you. I hope that's not COVID. No, it isn't. Nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death and afterwards the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear and not do such wickedness amongst you again. So if this is a somebody, you know, the phrase in verse 6, who is as your own soul, we're talking about a soulmate, right? Somebody you've grown up with, a brother, a sister, a family, even your own children. And you have these kinds of things. This is tough because these are all emotional connections. These are all people you know and people you love that come in and try to draw you away from the love of God. So often they'll appeal to those relationships to entice you away from what the Word of God says. This is tough. So if there are people who can quietly try to entice me away from what I'm doing, this happens when you basically say, hey, mom, dad, or brother, or sister, or soulmate, friend who I've known since high school, best man for my wedding, any of those kinds of things. And you say, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm just into Jesus. That's going to be my thing till the day I die. I really don't care about anything else anymore. I just love Jesus. So flat out all in, right? For some of your family members and friends, that's going to be tough to hear because you're getting a little too crazy about Jesus. If Jesus got crazy enough for me to die on a cross, how much less can I do for him before I even come close to that? But those folks will say, ah, I don't know if you should do this. I got a, a friend who went home to his family after getting saved, had just dumped drugs and alcohol, which he was addicted to both, and had stopped doing them and been sober for like a year and was totally on fire for Christ. His mom actually pulled him into the kitchen and said, you know, you keep talking about Jesus and we're kind of sick of it. And he's like, why would, I'm healthy? I'm off the drugs and alcohol? Like, are you serious? And his mom actually said to him, I'd rather you were on drugs and alcohol than talking about Jesus all the time because you're working everybody up. You're causing friction in the family. That's exactly what this is. It's an emotional connection saying, and he was hurt by, I mean, obviously he was hurt by this, right? So, and it was something where he's like, I couldn't believe my own mother was wishing for me the kind of jail cell that I used to have over the freedom that I now had. 
But when you're free and other people are still kind of in jail, that's awfully hard to hear your freedom. It kind of rubs them the wrong way. So Jesus mirrors this language from Moses in uh, Luke 14, verse 26. If anybody comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yeah, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus actually establishes, if you're going to follow him, you're going to have these people in your life that are going to be drawing you away. The near or far in verse 7, it's kind of anything. Verse 8, you shouldn't have pity when you do that. So if I'm going to follow Jesus and somebody's going to try to get in the way of that, it's not my job to worry about their feelings anymore. The pity should not be there. Like, we got to just tell people we're following the Lord. Verse 6, the word entice in verse 6 is not the same entice that we saw up in the earlier verses. The other verses, entice was like an advertisement. This entice means to soothe, intifada, appeal, convince. It's an emotional appeal or a draw or a pull. It's a, can we please? It's, a, it's kind of a begging appeal. And they make that kind of appeal playing on our emotions. Um, this is tough. Jesus even goes on. I think Jesus like gives this example that's, if you have family members like this, this is a tough conversation to have with family members. They're just sick of hearing about all your joy and happiness, right? And praise God if your family members are fellow Christians that you can share your love of Christ with. That's an awesome thing. But Jesus kind of redefines it. In Luke 8, verse 20, And it was told to him, Jesus, who said, Your mother and brothers are standing outside and they are desiring to see you. So this is not a harsh thing. This is good people saying, Hey, Jesus, can you stop with your preaching for a little bit? We would like to have a talk with you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Like Jesus himself did not have a lot of pity on his family. And we forget some of those verses. Like he drew a boundary there and said, and in one of the other gospels, he said, who are my mother, who are my brothers and sisters? These are my brothers and sisters, the ones who study the word of God with me. They're the ones who I live my life with and do things with. Verse nine says, your hand shall be first. Um, <laughs> we don't kill people today, but we do put people out of the church. And there are times when we say to even our own family and friends, you know, if you're going to hate on my Jesus so much, maybe we shouldn't spend so much time together. And I'm okay to draw that line. And Steph and I had long discussions about this. I think it's okay to draw that line as long as you show people where the door is because the door is always open. So if you want to be part of my life, come to Bible study. If you want to be part of what I'm doing, come meet my family and be part of this. And later on, after Jesus is resurrected, James and John, to, or James and, and Jude, to his brothers, write epistles in the New Testament. So eventually Jesus' brothers do become part of the faith, but there's a season where they're not part of the faith. And Jesus actually pushes them away. This is super thick stuff. But because he sought to entice you away, Moses' rationale is because they come all sweet, but when they're rejected, they get kind of nasty because their intention was to draw you away. And when they find out they can't do that, you start to see what's really underneath the skin. At the end of the day, they just kind of want you over this Jesus kick that you're on. So people trying to convince other people of virtually anything, public or private, it's usually false. Most Christians are solid enough, in, or they should be solid enough in their faith to where we're not really trying to push people. We're just trying to invite people. And we're not inviting people like we're enticing because that's a different kind of thing. So 
beware of the people that puff themselves up. Beware of the people that kind of humbly come and try to seduce you away from that. That end piece there that says the house of bondage, Moses reminds them that they used to be in bondage. And I think that's the proper response to people like this. What you're seeing is somebody who's a Jesus freak. What I'm seeing is somebody who's finally free and at peace. I don't have self-esteem issues that I used to. I'm not anxious like I used to be. I don't worry about this, that, or the other thing like I used to. I'm just a joyful person and living my life. And you want me back in bondage? I don't think so. I don't want to live that way. Freedom for me is better than bondage. And I don't want to be in bondage to that. I remember losing a lot of friends when I stopped doing fantasy football. And let me be clear on this. This is inside the church. There's nothing evil about fantasy football. But for me, it was drawing me away. It was taking time away from what I wanted to be doing when it came to serving the Lord. It was just something that sucked my brain in because the numbers, the stats, the research. But it gave no life at the other end of it. Like so, but it was amazing to me when I stopped doing fantasy football with people because I wanted more time for other things that I lost a lot of friends from my fantasy football league. They just stopped staying in touch because I wasn't doing that thing with them. But I was doing things that were way cooler than that and none of them would come with me on it. Okay, third scenario, verse 12. First was somebody who puffs somebody up. The second is that emotional appeal. The third one is when an entire group of people goes astray. And they have all convinced themselves with groupthink that they are right. If you hear someone in one of your cities, which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying, corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go serve other gods which you have not known. In verse 3, it says corrupt men. Uh, verse, 13, verse 13, I mean, uh, translated that sons of Belial. So this is when the enemy really convinces an entire population of people of a belief system or something that's off from the word of God. A whole group wants to toss off God's law and they've made it okay because they've all told each other it's okay. So if you just repeat it enough times, people will believe it. So you get a report of that by nature. That's you've got hearsay on your hands. You've heard about it in verse 12. And then in verse 14 is the response to that. Then you should inquire, search out and ask diligently. That's three different things that you do that all have to do with getting more information. Matthew reflects this too. When you have a problem with a brother, you're supposed to go to a brother one-on-one and say what your issue is with that person. God often directs us to get facts for ourselves. Don't believe gossip and don't believe hearsay. So if somebody comes in the door and says, oh, this group is horrible. These people making the chosen, they're making scenes that aren't in the Bible and you got all that. Go find out for yourself. You're not weak and fragile. You can go watch the show and go, okay, does this contradict the word of God or is it just awesome? And my conclusion was, this is just awesome. But you may have other issues with it. The point is, verse 14, you should inquire, search out, and ask diligently. Use your brains and ask for yourself. Don't trust what other people tell you. So group three kind of is a little bit of this rumor stuff that happens in the church. This was another lively discussion. What's the difference between finding out information, gossip, hearsay, and slander? And they're very thin lines, and it's a very tough way to distinguish those things. I think for me, the difference between gossip and just finding out through people and finding out what's going on and checking in with people and how so-and-so doing and what job they have is the intention of the heart. That if I'm finding things out so I can be the center of information or I can find things out so I can put other people down or lift up other people and work on who's ranking where, there's a sickness to that kind of thinking. 
if I'm just finding out because I love somebody and I want to know how they're doing, that like motivated most of Paul's letters to churches. That's really holy and really healthy. But in this case, somebody's coming in saying, oh, these people are not following the word of God. That's so bad. They got to find out about it. This happened with, uh, with uh, Paul and the church in Jerusalem said, okay, let's go send somebody out to check up and see what's going on with this guy named Paul. And they actually followed this mosaic advice to just go inquire and send somebody out to get the information. When the Pharisees came to check in on John the Baptist and Jesus, they were doing this. So there's this whole group of people out by the river baptizing and saying they're doing it in the name of God. And the Pharisees decided this was Beelzebub doing it or the sons of Belial. So they were actually following the word of God when they went to check up on Jesus. Problem is they were wrong in their inquiry. So they, oops, they kind of messed that one up. Matthew 18, if you do go to that brother one-on-one and they refuse to hear, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him to be like, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, following the exact same law that we saw earlier in this chapter. That's the Christian version of how we kill people. Because the way God tells them to treat these cities when the Israelites go in and conquer cities is that they're going to treat them like heathens and they're going to wipe out the city. So for the Old Testament, when you're trying to establish a nation, you don't want that corruption in your nation, and God commanded the killing of people. But for Christians, we just say, you know, I've told you what I was going to tell you, and you're still walking this path that's going away from God. I'm kind of done with you. i got to treat you as an evangelistic kind of thing right now. So when we treat somebody like a heathen and a tax collector in the church, that's not actually physically killing them, but it is kind of saying, you're not really in the kingdom here. You're off on your own little thing. And God asks for his servants to do the tough thing, which is inquiring. It's way easier to just not talk about it. But sometimes you can get into it. I really appreciate amongst this group, and I won't name names, but there's been often occasions where we get done and we start chatting afterwards, and there's questions and testing even of what I'm teaching. Because I'm not the one you should be listening to. The word of God is the one you should be listening to. So we have really respectfully gone up to each other and, and I've seen you do this and have courage and say, what do you think about this? And why are you saying this? And where do you get this from? And that's like being like the Bereans. We're just going to learn it and test it and study it for ourselves and we're going to do it in community. So being direct, inquiring, asking, searching, looking for evidence, interrogating people, grilling them, finding out what they really think. God asks his servants to do that. Judges 19.20 this, uh, lays this out. There's a, a Levite's concubine that gets murdered. First of all, Levites shouldn't have concubines, so there's a problem with that. And then the Levite, take it, and he felt like it was an unjust murder, so he cut her up into little pieces and sends her out all over Israel. And that's in reference to this passage because there's rumor then that something bad happened in this city. And he was asking the rest of the nation to come inspect what had just happened in the city. So they, they did. They came and found out that the rumor was true. And then they dealt with the city. So this only happens one other. It only actually gets acted on once in the Bible. And that goes back to what Moses was saying. The point of all this is that people don't do it. So that we don't want to have to enforce this over and over and over again. The idea of being harsh or killing people here is so that Israel shall hear and fear and not do such wickedness as this among you, verse 11. And throughout the rest of the Bible, we only see this kind of wickedness exactly once in Judges. Acts 11:22. 22. 
The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. That's the reference when they were checking in on Paul. So we had that kind of situation in the New Testament where they send people out to check in on things. Verse 15, You shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that's in it, and its livestock with the edge of the sword. Exactly what they're going to do to Canaanite cities. So they treat them like heathen. And you shall gather all the plunder in the middle of the street and completely burn it with fire in the city and all its plunder. For the Lord your God, it shall be a heap forever and it shall not be beat, built again. Two reasons for doing this. Uh, they're going to treat that city like a heathen city and burn it. But why burn all the good stuff? And part of that is because it deters people from making rumors for greediness. Because what if a city started getting wealthy? All you'd have to do is make up a rumor get the rest of Israel to attack that city, and then you could take home all the loot. So the rule here kind of prevents that. If a city is unholy and there's something wrong, not only do you kind of wipe it out, but nobody gets to gain from this situation. The situation's bad from beginning to end. Nobody gets the gold, the silver, the jewels, none of it. No red, red soup. It all gets burnt up and nobody gets to profit off this situation. Often with gossip and rumors, somebody stands to profit from those gossips and rumors. And that's a situation you want to try to avoid. So you take away any kind of profitability from it. Verse 17, So none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you just as he swore to his father. So when you do this, when you are keeping boundaries for your church and understanding that we're going to stick to the word of God, we're just going to adhere to what God, God's word says, you're going to have these three situations. People who are puffed up that come into your group, people that are kind of quietly moving around trying to play things, or even factions of people or entire cities of people that try to pull you away from the word of God. And basically Moses in this chapter is saying you got to just deal with that, take care of it, and then the New Testament, you actually want to get those people out of your church. We still want to minister and bring the good news to the world, but we don't want that kind of corruption happening in the space where we study the word every week. We get six and a half days a week to be out in the world doing our thing, loving people and whatnot. When we get together to study the word, that's kind of a sacred place. And in this place, we want to stick to the word and stick to it. We don't need that kind of stuff around. Verse 18, because you've listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today, to do what's right in the eyes of the Lord your God. Listen to it, keep it, do it. Uh, so this is what you do with folks that presume that they don't need to follow God's word. This is what you do with folks that presume they don't even need to read God's word. Like they've just dismissed God's word. So you kind of treat them like they're heathens. They're not really walking in the spirit when they do that. Thrust away the false prophets, uh, the false relationships, and the false communities. They just don't belong in the church. You hand them over to God and let God deal with it. And our job is to cling to God as much as we can. It's a tough place to be. So that's that chapter. <laughs> and then we get into Deuteronomy 14. We are now in the law. We're thick in the law. Your children, the Lord your God, you shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you're a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people who are on the face of the earth. So if you don't think Israel is exceptional in the Bible, these are verses that are contra They do point out Israel is an exceptional nation. They have been picked out by God. Um, verse 1 is referring to the burial rites of pagans. 
If you really want to get into pagan worship and stuff, they do wacky things. But most of the wacky things, the, the cutting themselves and all that, has to do with the transference of life from one being to another being. So they may slay a bull and drink its blood, transferring the life of the bull into the person, thinking that does something. So when someone dies and their spirit's moving on and you cut yourself, it's like a release of your spirit so that you can be with them and help usher them into heaven or some weird stuff like that. So what Moses is basically saying in verse one is don't be like the Canaanites when it comes to how we mourn and how dead people die. So there's still some cultures on the planet even today that do ritual cuttings and ritual mutilations as part of their religious worship. So I'm just gonna call that stuff creepy um, in verse two, he gives the rationale. Why do we not do ritual cuttings in our religion? Because, well, it doesn't say it. It says you're a holy people, which is the positive version of because that other stuff is creepy, right? We don't do it because we're holy and we want to be, and we trust the Lord, your God. So he points out that we are chosen and that there's a special treasure that we are above all people on the face of the earth. First Thessalonians 4:13 to connect this to the new Testament says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The reason we don't mourn like the rest of the world does is we actually have hope that death is not the end. We have hope that there's something better coming on the other side. In Thessalonians, that's about being not ignorant, but being informed about those things. And that others sorrow who don't have hope, meaning that we as believers do have hope. And that's kind of what Moses is giving when he says in verse 2, you're a holy people, chosen, and a special treasure. Like, it's not the death that we should focus on in times of death or in grief. It's the fact that that person or even us have been given a purpose and a plan in our life that we move forward with. And we all are going to die. It's like taxes. It's coming, believe it or not, for some of us earlier than others. But we're all going to die. It's a given. We don't necessarily get as worked up about that. What's left over for the believer is just the heart-wrenching grief of lo losing somebody you love. So going through mourning is still miserable, but we don't try to do religious ceremonies to fix it or try to do bloodletting to try to do some weird stuff that makes us feel better about it. Um, so it's still a painful process, still hard to lose somebody, but we are a holy people and we are to be separated and set apart. It's interesting in 1 Peter 2.9 that this idea of being chosen and a holy people Peter actually uses the language from verse 2 when he says in a slightly different context, 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. I just That's just one of those verses that's just amazing. But he's mirroring some of the language from Moses. That idea that we're a special treasure is our identity in Christ and who we are. Because in the flesh, we think either very highly of ourselves, abnormally highly of ourselves, or we actually put ourselves down in the flesh. But God's given us a very clear identity in Christ that when we are in those times of mourning or tough things, it's hard to think too low of yourself if you know that you've been chosen, that you're a holy priesthood, that you're part of a holy nation. And the peculiar people, maybe you shouldn't think so highly of yourself either. We are abnormal, weird people. And that's okay too. So, but you're a special treasure is what God calls you. In the Old Testament theology, Israel is always God's treasure. In the New Testament, the kingdom of heaven is God's treasure. 
and the holy priesthood, you and me are God's treasure. It's interesting how biblically speaking that idea of treasure is a progressive revelation. And God expands what he treasures as we go through the Bible. Verse 3, you shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. So get ready for your dietary lessons. You can eat oxen, sheep, goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. You may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split in two parts that choose the cud among the animals. There are biologists that do conniptions over this stuff. They love it because we're starting to divide out the animal kingdom into features. So we can get phylum and kinds and species and all sorts of things. And all of that comes because God tells them what they should eat or not. So for us folks that are not scientists in that kind of way, or we're not life scientists, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 all talk about herbivores. These are animals that live in herds and they don't kill things to get their food. They are therefore not killer animals. They are plant-eating animals or nice animals. So he's telling Jewish people, don't eat the killers because there's something that God does with that. So he gives further detail. Nevertheless, those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare, the rock, hyrax, for they chew the cud, but they don't have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also, the swine is unclean for you. Oh, it just hurts. Because it has cloven hooves, but it doesn't chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh nor touch their dead carcasses. So this is unique to Israel. They get dietary plans from their God. Uh, this is not like the pagans. This is separating them from pagan worship. It's not necessarily about the food. And I'll tell you, it's not about the food for two reasons. One, this is Mosaic law. There are good people that God loves that have gone to heaven prior to this law being given. Abraham did not have these dietary restrictions. It's not about the food. After Mosaic law, God tells Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Paul says it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man that defiles him. Or is that Jesus? Somebody help me out on that. I don't want to be wrong because I don't have to go back and edit the podcast because of that. Jesus said that? Okay, thank you. Therefore, it's not the food that matters. What Moses is doing here is he's making a nation that's going to be set apart from all the other nations. That's a big deal. Because Israel is going to represent God's kingdom on earth for a season. So in Acts 10.3, you get the rise, kill, and eat. Um, this is their way of separating themselves from the world. What we eat, by the way, is still our way of separating ourselves from the world. If you go out with a bunch of coworkers on a Friday afternoon and they go to a bar and they all start drinking, you have a decision to make. There is nothing sinful about alcoholic beverage, but you can decide if you want to separate yourselves from that activity or if you want to join in on that activity. And I think that's what Moses is doing here. Like, be distinct and be holy, right? Paul goes on and kind of basically says, um, oh, I didn't put the reference. 1 Corinthians 8, food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we don't eat are we worse, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Are there people in the United States of America that struggle with alcohol as a beverage? Answer is yes. There are plenty of people that struggle with alcohol for a beverage. Therefore, 
You have to make a decision if you want to be part of that or not. Paul's discussion was to stand apart. Eating food sacrificed to idols really doesn't matter to us as new believers. So we could go to a Roman thing and they could be having pork roast and we could have pork roast. We're not going to burn in hell based on what we eat. It's not a legalistic thing. But if we go to that temple worship where they're worshiping a God with that pork roast and we eat it, we're participating in a spiritual conversation. We're participating in a cultural conversation that people have. So when we eat food that has meaning beyond the food, we're in trouble and we're on thin ice with that. And we have to be really thoughtful if we're going to partner with that or if we're going to be distinct and apart. So this is where it gets to be fun. We can go in and when everybody's doing their stuff, we can just say, I'll have a cherry Coke, thank you. And that starts wonderful discussions about why are you doing that? And fasting's the same way. Oh, no, thank you, I'm fasting. And you're separating yourselves and telling people what matters to you when you do it. Not so you can puff yourself up and be like better and bigger than other people, but it's a great way to tell other people who you are in Christ. I, it's not a legalistic thing. I'm just fasting because I really want to set something aside for God and I want to make it be sacred when I eat again. I want to really appreciate it. So I'm just fasting for that reason. So verse 9, these you may eat all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales, fish. And whatever does not have fins or scales, you should not eat. Catfish, it is unclean to you. Why is that? Because fins and scales swim in the water. All those other fish are bottom feeders. So if you eat a sturgeon, that thing's been in the crap at the bottom of the river, and you're eating the stuff that sucks the crap. So when he says eat the fish, he's saying eat the, he's, he's symbolically having them eat things that are cleaner than the other things. Um, all the birds you can eat, but these you should not eat. Eagle, vulture, buzzard. All three of those are scavengers. They eat stuff that's already been dead. Uh, the red kite, the falcon, the kite of their kinds, every raven after its kind, the ostrich, the short-eared owl, the seagull, the hawk after their kinds, the little owl, the screech owl, the white owl, the jackdaw, the carrion vulture, the fisher owl, the stork, the heron after its kind, and the hoopy and the bat. All flying animals we should not be eating. Why? Most of them are eating dead things and they're scavengers. So they, the diseases go into them. Vultures are, by the way, a fascinating bird if you ever want to study what they do. Vultures can eat anything and not be affected by it. So there's been stuff with vultures where they've eaten plagued animals and they don't have any problems with it. Something about their digestive system, how they were made, they're it's really, it's crazy. At the same time, if you eat a vulture, you can still get that thing that they ate. So there's a really practical thing with this food list. They're, God's basically making millions of new Jewish people because they're not being killed with plagues and diseases by with these laws. Practically speaking, symbolically, you're eating the stuff that eats, all that's left over are like chicken, right? Which goes around in the ground and eats grass and ladybugs and they're kind of herbivores. They're not eating meat all the time. So verse 19, every creeping thing that flies is unclean for you, so we should not eat flies. They shall not be eaten. That would be insects, all that kind of thing. You may eat all clean birds. You shall not eat anything that dies of itself. Roadkill. You may give it to an alien who's within your gates. They can eat it. Or you can sell it to a foreigner, but you are a holy people to the Lord your God. So the rationale in 21 isn't that you're going to feed it to them to kill them. It's that that's food. You know, you can still cook a dead deer, 
The problem is when something dies of its own accord and you find it dead, it hasn't been bled properly. And remember one of the earlier laws is if you eat something, you gotta drain the blood out of it. So you're, it hasn't been field treated. So for other people, it's not an issue. It's not a big deal. Um, but for the people of Israel, they're supposed to set themselves apart. Again, getting back to the idea that it's not the food that's the problem and it's not something to get weird and legalistic about or have little rules for yourself. This is why I think it's funny when you see people that are like, I did everything the Old Testament said. Have you heard there's that one guy that followed every single law? And they miss the things like that's not the point of any of this. Like you should have read chapters 5 through 11. There's the heart of the law that's here. It's about where your heart's at. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, that's kind of a humorous verse. It's referring directly to fertility pagan rituals of the Canaanites that would do exactly that in order to make themselves more fertile. They would eat that. And, and they're basically saying, don't do the stuff that the people of the world are doing. The equivalent today is to go to like a beer bash where everybody's getting loaded and drunk. Don't be part of that. And don't engage in that kind of thing. <laughs> you shall not boil the young goat in its mother's milk. Maybe I'm stretching that too far. Christians can eat as we please, but we can make people stumble based on where we eat and what we eat and how we eat. And that's a big deal to God. So eating matters. It's not just me that says that. I think today, and the reason why I bring up alcohol, and, and I know that there are people in the room that drink. I've drank before. But I also have relatives that have become alcoholics as I've gotten older. And now that I know I have relatives that struggle with alcohol, alcohol is gone from my house. It's just a beverage. And cherry Coke tastes better. So it's gone because I, I wouldn't want to be somebody where I'm being hospitable and I invite somebody in my home and they go in the fridge and there's one of the greatest temptations in their life right in front of their face. What a horrible thing. I just wouldn't want to do that to them. But some of you come from families where there are no alcoholics. It's not a problem. It's a family tradition. It's how you do things. And then you're looking at like Jesus had wine at the wedding. So if Jesus is drinking wine, it's not the alcohol that's the problem. It's the people around us that might struggle with that. So if I'm dealing with somebody, say, that comes from a Muslim culture and there's real issues with food for that person and I'm serving them dinner for the night, I don't put food in front of them that would cause them to stumble. I'm sensitive to those things, which means I have to learn about that culture in order to be sensitive about that culture so that I'm not putting, because the food doesn't matter. What matters is the spiritual relationship I have with the people around me. That's far more important. Verse 23 or 22 you shall oh, we go to a totally different topic. I love how Moses does this. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. So now we're on tithing. So if the food topic didn't get you worked up, let's talk about money. So tithing is the word asar. It literally means a tenth part, which is where we get 10% as our tithe. It's what the word means. Um, it says you shall truly tithe. They actually use asar twice in the Hebrew at the beginning of that verse. Asar, asar, which adds emphasis. Super tithing. You will be super tithers as a group of people. Super tithing. The emphasis of you shall truly is to, you know, I think the translation's really good. It's to not be false about it. Don't pretend to tithe and then not do it. Be true tithers. Do it for real. You shall, at the beginning of verse 22, another way to deal with money. It's not an option. It's a command. So in case you missed the you shall, tithing is not something that's optional. And that's a really popular philosophy in the American church right now, that tithing is what you should feel like tithing or not. And tithing is not in the Hebrew and in the Old Testament. It's not an option. It's a command. You're supposed to do it. 
The New Testament talks about the heart of giving, not the amount of giving. And that's, I think, where people get to the New Testament and they use that as their excuse. But if you're using the New Testament as an excuse, you have missed the heart of giving in the first place. So the disciples, when they first got the freedom in Christ, they didn't say, oh, we don't have to tithe anymore. They said, oh, we don't have to just tithe 10% anymore. And most of the disciples you see in the book of Acts gave way more than 10%. Some of them gave everything they owned because they could give whatever they wanted to God. So it wasn't like an excuse to be weaselly with God. The freedom of money and finances we find in the New Testament was actually to be more generous with God. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Every man should give as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or out of necessity, because God loves a cheerful giver. That's not an excuse to not give. It's the state of heart that you should have when you give. All the increase, Moses in our verse says you should truly tithe, all the increase of your grain, uh, don't tithe part of it or little bits of it or that something like that. Tithing predates Mosaic law. We saw Abraham tithing back in Genesis. Um, it goes past Mosaic law. We see it in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so you should do. On the first day of each week, let every one of you lay by him in store, all as God has prospered him. So throughout the Bible, giving is always proportional. So it's a percentage. It's not a set amount. So it's not like Roman taxes. The other thing that we also see consistently through the Bible is it's really not about the money. It's about where our heart's at when we do it. Is it our money that we've earned or is it God's blessing that we're just going to give back to God because it wasn't ours to start with? So when that heart gets in the right place and that giving gets in the right place, it all kind of flows. And tithing and money is always more about our benefit than it is about God's. God doesn't need our money, but we need to be freed from worship of that money. Verse 23, you shall eat before the Lord your God. That's a command. In the place where he chooses to make his name abide and, and tithe your green and your new wine and your oil of your firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Eat there is a call. It is to devour or burn up or consume. In other words, you should get together. When you give your tithe to the church and there's that feast, you should be feasting with the people you're serving the Lord with. This is a big deal and it keeps coming up. Steph always laughs at me because I keep emphasizing it, but I'm emphasizing it because Moses was probably a pretty chunky guy and he liked eating and he made it a, a big deal, but the Lord's commanding them to do it and he's telling the Israelites, you should do it too. Don't just drop your stuff off at the church. Stick around and eat before the Lord your God and be part of that process that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always and put God first. Verse 24, but if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. Distance can easily be an issue with some of this. And God, through Moses, puts that condition in there in verse 24 and 25. Again, it's not about the money. And it's not he's not trying to make this difficult for people. So moving two oxen from Galilee to Jerusalem would be a major pain in the butt. And God's just saying, let's it's not about we don't want this to be a pain in the butt. Just sell the oxen and bring the money to Jerusalem. And that's exactly how this plays out. Our God is a God of common sense. Our God is not one of legalism and making it hard for people. 
And the Old Testament's not about legalism. Verse 24 and 25, there's exceptions to be made. Verse 26, you shall spend that money and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart's desires, for oxen, sheep, wine, similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall there eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates for he has no part for he has no part nor inheritance with you. Okay, some people really misconstrue these verses. So I'm going to sell my oxen in Galilee, bring it down to Jerusalem, and then I can spend it on whatever I want. So therefore, it's like free-for-all money. And that's, in context, that's not what's going on here. It Basically, you can spend it on whatever you want. Oxen, sheep, wine, drink. You can add to the feast whatever you want to add to the feast with that money, but it's for the feast. And don't make any mistake about it, that is tithe money and it should go to that church or that synagogue in the Old Testament. So here's what happens. If everybody's bringing in lamb, sheep, and goats, you only have three foods at your feast. So the people that are further away are going to take their money and buy other things for the feast, like spices and things to make that feast even more delicious. So God's thinking about that. And when he sets up Israel... It's interestingly set up in such a way that roughly half the country would sell their stuff and, and have other things, and about half the country is close enough to walk their livestock to Jerusalem. So, again in verse 27, it notes you shouldn't forget your Levites, the teachers of the law, those people that are there. So if you're, you know, a lot of teachers in the room, we get to holidays, a lot of our kids bring us candy and treats. I think that's awesome. It's sweet. And it's absolutely how God designed us. When somebody teaches us about life and things, it's really natural to say, I just want to hook you up with an apple. Or I want to, you know, we had this stuff and here you go. And I made this myself. And they bring these nasty looking cookies. But it's really holy for kids to do that. And it's really natural and sweet when they do those kinds of things. So it's not really important how our tithe goes to God but that our tithe goes to God and that it builds the ministry. And sometimes that and God gives a lot of license in verse 26 and 27 on what we can spend that money on to build the ministry. If it's getting the word of God out, then we're going to put our money there and do that. Luke 16, 13, to connect it to the New Testament, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. You know, it's interesting, the word mammon really only comes up in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. Actually, it comes from the Chaldeans. And what happened is we went from the Old Testament, where virtually everybody was a farmer or a herdsman. And Moses always talks about crops or meat when he's talking about tithe, because that's what everybody did in the nation. But by the time we hit the first century, there are trades and craftspeople and folks that don't own crops and they don't have herds. So what translated is that the idea of tithe being an agricultural product shifted. So by the time we hit the first century, they used the word mammon. And it didn't mean money. It meant treasure or confidence is where the word comes from. So you can't serve both God and your confidence. So whatever it is in this world that gives you confidence, you can't serve that. You got to let it go and give it to God. And that's what my retirement fund would do for me. That's what a salaried income does for me. All of those things give me confidence. Like I feel stable and secure if only I can get my house paid off. Or I feel secure if I got my retirement fund in place. All those things are our confidence. And it's good to have those things. But we don't put our confidence in money. We put it in God. 
And God basically says you can't serve both. You got to struggle with those things. So especially a lot of young people in the room, like that's a struggle when you're getting started because you don't have confidence in your finances. There's so much to buy and not enough time. Um, but it's hard. You got to work with that. Another, that root word mammon that comes out is your avarice. It's the thing you pursue. And that's a dangerous place. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he's no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are in your gates, they can come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand. So we get a major principle of Judaism and Christianity in verses 28 and 29. The reason we give our money to the church and tithe it and we don't care what happens to it is because the church can use that to serve and help the poor, the needy, the broke, the heartless, and the broken. And we want the church to have the resources to help those people. What's really sad is when churches do like the glass cathedral, I don't, I'm probably dating myself, where the, there was a guy who got on TV, Robert Schuller, he's like, I just, God's telling me we got to build the glass cathedral and we need millions of dollars to build this epic building. And it's like, that is not the purpose of tithes and offering. It's just not. Like, it doesn't matter where the church meets. There's nothing in here about what the temp, like what these buildings, these synagogues should look like. The temple gets fairly detailed descriptions, but the synagogues get next to none. It doesn't matter where we meet. We can meet in Peter's basement. What matters is that that money's getting used. The first thing the disciples did when they started teaching the word of God is they started having these big meals together. In fact, they pulled the new disciples up when they had to draw straws. They picked one of the guys who was waiting tables. And they, they brought people up through the ministry when it came to feeding people and getting people. In fact, they had so many people coming to them for food that that became the major problem that the disciples were so busy serving food, they couldn't be teaching the word to people. So they're like, okay, we got to get you off of that so we can be doing these other things. So that idea of using the tithe to feed people, verse 29, for me, that's just a verse that kind of shows me the heart of my God. That that's the whole point of all of this is that we can love people that maybe in life haven't been loved that much and they need that love. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. I love, Moses given lots of justifications why we should do what we should do, but this tradition of caring for the poor via a tithe system, the rationale for that is entirely selfish. Like, I just, I think it's funny because Moses, remember his rationale as we've been going through Deuteronomy is usually because the Lord is your God and you should fear him. That's the rationale. Or you do this because God said so has been his rationale. But here it's, you should do this so that everything you do prospers. That's the blessing. If you don't serve the money, the money kind of takes care of itself. Man, that's hard to believe when you just hear it. But when God does it, and you, it helps you build your faith and walking side by side with God. It's interesting that I think Moses gives that rationale here that's to, for your own increase, you should be doing these things. So as God promises to bless those people that aren't ruled by money. He promises to take care of people that aren't ruled by money. Even as God takes care of the birds of the field and the flowers of the field, won't he take care of you too? So it's a test for each person of something totally private and personal. Like nobody knows what you give but you and God, because you can secretly hide that from everybody but the church treasurer. So it's something personal. If you can't be trusted with money stuff, why would God trust you with ministry stuff? 
Like if that's an area you cut corners, why would he ever put you in charge of other people's souls or give you opportunities to share your faith? So you're faithful in one thing, you do the other. Luke 16, 11, If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust in the true riches? Money then isn't evil. Loving money is evil. Because you're like, why did Solomon get so rich? Because he didn't serve it. It wasn't his, his God or his master. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The work of your hand is any work that's in front of you. So in these verses, in verse 29, there's no implication that getting money is to be idle or to not work hard. So when you get people that are opulently wealthy just so that they don't have to do anything, that's not really what God's idea here is when it comes to, there should be work happening six days a week. So if ever you get to the point where you've earned so much you don't have to work anymore, you should think about working anyways and maybe getting some of that money off your plate and moving it on. So this goes back to kind of the principle from Deuteronomy 11. You can go through life watering by foot, doing everything the hard way, or you can go through life trusting God and letting God just take care of things, which is the easy way. So when the work of my hand is blessed, that doesn't say I'm going to get more money. It just means I'm going to get more product from the time I spend doing things. Have you ever had that experience where you got a project that think, you think it's going to take you all day and then it takes you like three hours? Like you're just way more efficient than you thought you would be? When we pray to God and we're faithful in those things, our whole life becomes just more efficient than we thought it would be. Until the people around you are saying, how do you get so much done? And you're like, I just trust the Lord will help me get things done. And it works. But it's hard to, if you haven't experienced that, it's really hard to describe. It's the same work either way. The work of our hand is not the option in verse 29. We will have work with our hands. We'll have things to do. The outcome of our work is what's in question when it comes to that. So we covered all these things. We had puffed up people that come into the church. We got those slidey people coming into the church. We got groups of people with false beliefs in the church. We got stuff about how to eat. And we got stuff about tithing our money. If none of this connects to you, you're not human. So there should be plenty of things to talk about. And I just love the fact that we can kind of go back through these things. But think about our own lives, where we're at. How can we get closer to the Lord? How can we do things more like how the Lord wants us to do them? So with that, let's say a quick word of prayer and then we'll have some discussion. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you're blunt with us, Lord. Uh, sometimes we're thick. Uh, and you make it really direct and easy uh, as to how we should behave and, and how we should, we should be doing things. Lord, we also know when it's personal and it's private, when it comes to what we eat, how we use our money, how we deal with uh, people that are enticing us to believe things that are, are in contrast to your word. Uh, Lord, those are so intimate. It's so personal. And sometimes there can be shame around those topics. Uh, and Lord, we're not here to condemn each other. Uh, we are here to encourage and edify one another. Uh, so, Lord, let there be no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but only the pursuit of being more holy tomorrow than we are today. So help us to learn and to grow and not to uh, necessarily have shame or regret around any of these topics, Lord. Help us to just move forward in your uh, grace and in your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.